Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So uh, one of my favorite series, which I think I've shared before, is Harry Potter. And a few weeks ago, you know, just for some fun, summer fun, uh, my wife Lauren and I, one of our good friends, sat down together and decided we were going to watch them all over again. Now there's eight movies, according to our testing, it's about 20 hours, so we didn't do it all in one day. But after watching the first one, uh, we sat around and then we began to talk about the movie. And I was talking about all the connections that I saw in this first movie that are kind of transpiring throughout the rest of the story and later in other movies and the character development that happens. And, and I was so intrigued. And after about three minutes of talking, Lauren stopped me and she goes, wow, you're such a Harry Potter nerd. <laughs> now, I was pretty proud in that moment, uh, but... At the same time, I knew that I couldn't claim to be a real nerd. See, um, what happens is that after we started talking a little more, I had to admit that I've only watched the movies. I've never read the books. It's okay. Yeah, I know. The gas, the roll your eyes. I get it. I'm ready for it. I'm one of those people, one who watches the movies and doesn't read the books. I'm getting around to it, okay? I got time. Uh, but uh, one day I'll read them, and that's besides the point. See, as the conversation went on, our friend began to point out that in the books you get a lot more depth, a lot more detail, uh, that the story kind of goes a little bit deeper, that there's more characters, and all this added extra stuff that you just don't get in a movie. You even, of course, get that third-person omniscient point of view, the writer's perspective who narrates and really tells the story in order to keep it moving. And the reason I bring this up this morning is because I think the comparison between a book and a movie and how they're different and yet can tell the same story is similar when we think about the four Gospels, particularly the Gospel that we're in this morning. See, the Gospel that we're in is, of course, the Gospel of Mark, and Mark's Gospel is what I like to call the movie version of the story. See, Mark's Gospel is written in a way that lends itself to constant, ongoing, continuous action. When you look at the other Gospels, they contain uh, more information, a little bit more narration, some details about places and people and all kinds of things, but Mark's Gospel just kind of keeps it moving along. I mean, think about trying to put the Gospel of Matthew into a movie. You'd need like 50 actors to get through the first 17 verses, and then you'd really get going. But Mark's Gospel isn't like that. Uh, Mark writes in a way that allows us to continue to read the story, to watch it live, so to speak, as we are reading it. And so whenever we jump into the story like we do this morning, we have to be really aware of the context of what's happening in the story. So right before our text this morning, Mark finds us, Mark tells us about how Jesus has recently been with his disciples. And of course, he's telling them about what life is going to be like in the kingdom of God and when they're going to go from place to place teaching and preaching about repenting and how they're going to be healing people, how they're going to cast out demons, how Jesus himself is already doing these things. And then Mark invites us to experience what that might be like from someone's perspective. In this case, King Herod. Now, uh, this is not the Herod who tried to kill Jesus when he was a baby. That was his father. So we've got Herod the Great. This is Herod Antipas, his son. Okay, And this Herod, when he hears the name Jesus and he hears people asking the questions, who is this guy? Who's the one doing all these things? Everyone is speculating about it. Some say Elijah. Some say John the Baptist. Some say another prophet. And then, of course, there's that Jesus name. Well, Herod comes into the story and he says, no, no, I know who this is. This is John the Baptist. 
But Herod does it in such a unique way, he adds a caveat. See, uh, Herod has an interesting relationship with John, so to speak. Herod believes that John is of a holy man, and he fears John. But right here, in this moment, Herod says, This is John the Baptist, the one whom I beheaded has risen from the dead. And then, what happens is the gospel invites us into a very unique moment. Something that in a movie happens quite often, especially in Harry Potter movies. The gospel invites us into a flashback. It takes us back to the story that Herod is about to tell us, this time from the narrator's perspective. And this story is not one that you might expect to find in Scripture. It sounds more like an R-rated Netflix show or something you see on HBO, or as someone at 8 o'clock service pointed out to me, so, Pastor, you got the short straw this morning. <laughs> but uh, join me in the gospel. See, King Herod has recently thrown John the Baptist into prison. And he threw John into prison because he was listening to his wife Herodias, who wanted John to go into prison. See, she hated John because John was saying things about them. Specifically, John was saying that their marriage was unlawful. Well, why was it unlawful? Thanks for asking. See, uh, John was going around and telling Herod and Herodias their marriage was unlawful because Herodias used to be married to a man named Philip. And Philip, well, we don't really know much about him. We assume he was an okay guy. But there's an interesting thing about Philip. See, Philip has a brother. Philip's brother's name is Herod. Yeah, that one. So Herodias is no longer married to Philip. She's now married to his brother. And Philip is still alive. Yeah, it's not okay, right? So John is telling them, that can't happen. That's not right. And Herod understands and is, again, afraid. He has a holy reverence for John. But Herodias doesn't want to hear anything of it. In fact, she wants to kill him. But because of his fear of him, Herod says, you know what? No, we'll just put him in prison. We'll leave him alone. And then the story continues. This time now we see Herod having a birthday party for himself, of course. Big Bash, who knows how old he was, but it was a good one. He invites all the local officials. They gather together in this wonderful place and they celebrate incredible extravagant food. The drinks are flowing. It is an incredible night of celebration. And Herodias sees this as an opportunity. See, what she does is she sends her daughter, Herod's niece, into that space to do some dancing, as scripture puts it. And I'll clarify for you, she wasn't ballroom dancing. <laughs> and there she is, dancing in front of all of these people, these officials, Herod himself. And Herod then says to her, as he's enamored with this so-called dancing, I'll give you anything you want. Notice that he has the presence of mind to say, anything you want, up to half of my kingdom. Right? He makes this offer to her, and this girl, seemingly somewhat of a teenager, is confused. And I was like, oh, I don't know what to do with this. Goes back to her mom and says, what do we do? Without hesitation, Herodias says, give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the daughter walks back into that room, and in front of everyone, says, the head of John the Baptist on a platter. That's what I want. And Herod is now faced with Two choices. One, he could embarrass himself in front of all of his guests after making a seemingly ridiculous promise and go back on his word and say, well, I can't do that. Or he can do what he believes 
is the honorable thing, at least in front of his guests. He wants to keep his word so that the people there will continue to honor and respect him as a king. And so that's what he does. He immediately goes and has John the Baptist beheaded. And then as if to show uh, some shred of dignity to John and perhaps to kind of show it to himself, he tells the disciples they can come in and they can take away the body and they can bury it. Now, if you're here with us for the first time this morning or you're hearing this story for the first time in a long time, I understand that when you hear these details, the, the dirty, messy details, you might be a little shocked. I mean, this might not come as a surprise to you. When someone asks me one of my favorite Bible stories, I don't lead with this one. This one doesn't really make the list. When people ask, what's so amazing about following Jesus, I don't tell them, well, have you heard the one about the disciple got his head cut off? I'm more likely to tell them about the one where Jesus turns water into wine at the wedding. You know, good time, good celebration, right? This story isn't one that we talk about during dinner time. This story isn't one that gets us excited for following Jesus. And yet, I can't help but see how this story does something for us and to us. See, this story, hearing all those details laid out, it makes us feel a little uneasy. It causes us to, to squirm in the pews a little bit. I mean, based on how some of you were looking at me as I retold it, I could see how uncomfortable you were and how uncomfortable I was having to retell it. And I think it's because this is one of those stories that really highlights the deep, dark depravity of what it looks like to live in a fallen, sinful, broken world. It kind of shocks you at first. When you hear all the details, when you really lay it out, you're like, wow, this is, this is crazy. I've never heard anything like this. And then all of a sudden, it begins to sound just like another story. It begins to sound like something you heard on the news or on the radio when you drove in this morning. Something you read in the paper last night. Something you saw on Facebook or online. The story begins to sit with you in a different way as if it's just part of reality. And on a more personal level... This story, in a very unique way, awakens the reality of sin in our own lives. It awakens our own personal sins. Perhaps it's not marrying your sibling's spouse or beheading a disciple. But whatever it is, before God, it's still sin. And I don't know about you, but I don't like being reminded of my sin. I don't like thinking about all the sins that I've committed. And when I do think about those sins, when I think about the way that sin, my sin has impacted my life and in the lives of the people around me, the people that I claim to love, I wonder, how could someone love me? And even more so, die for me. But it's stories like this one that remind me that that's exactly what Jesus does. Jesus looks into the darkness. He sees the messiness and the dirtiness in our lives and he steps right in. No mess is too big for him. No part of our lives is too dirty or messed up. In the kingdom of God, Jesus deals with our sin head on. He doesn't overlook them or try to find his way around them. He doesn't try to dress them up and make them sound as if they're not that 
bad. Instead, he takes them on. He takes our sins, no matter how dark they might be, and he makes them his own. He takes our mess and makes it his mess. Jesus shows us that in the kingdom of God, the work that he does, the work of salvation, the work to save us from sin and death and the grave, the work that he does to redeem us is messy. And certainly, we deal with, we experience the depravity of our sin in our guilt and in our shame. But even more so, we experience the forgiveness and the grace and the new life that comes through Jesus, who saves people from their sins. People like me and you. And that promise of forgiveness and grace is a promise that we hold on to desperately each and every day. Because the reality is, those promises that come through Jesus, that, that promise of new life and forgiveness and hope and grace are promises that bring us hope when we hear stories like this one. Stories that cause us to grieve the dark, sinful world in which we live in. Stories that cause us to recognize our own sinfulness. Stories about sometimes what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus, to lose your life. Stories that remind us of the reality that sometimes one man dies for the sins of another. It's because in a unique way, this story reminds us of the death that Jesus died. His death for our sin. And yet, in his death, he suffered God's real wrath, the wrath of our sin. And in his resurrection, he revealed God's reign and rule in his kingdom. He revealed his promises of grace and forgiveness and life. See, Jesus steps right into the mess of our lives, and he makes us clean. He makes us new, he washes us, he clothes us in righteousness, and then he sends us out into the world. Not bearing our sin, but instead living in redemption. The redemption that he gives to us. Church, don't ever think that your mess is too big. Don't ever think that your sin is too much. Stories like this one remind us that Jesus has no problem stepping right in to the messiness of our lives and doing the work of redeeming sinners like me and you so that instead we can be called saints, children of the one true king, living this life full of redemption in Jesus. And that brings us hope. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.